Rebounds. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we continue our coverage of the trial of the police officer, Derek Chavan, who is on trial for the murder of George Floyd. Our guest is Minneapolis-based D.A. Bullock, who is with Reclaim the Block, which demands that Minneapolis police divest from policing and invest in long-term alternatives. Also, amidst the sea of disturbing news at the border on the treatment of immigrant children by the Biden administration, some good news from the immigrants' rights movement. Our guest is Marumora Villapando with La Resistencia. And for our weekly Earth Watch, we focus on the campaign to protect Indonesian rainforests. We speak with Sergio Bafodi, who is with the Environmental Paper Network, also our weekly Earth Minute. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. A child was among four people killed in a mass shooting at an office building in the city of Orange, southeast of Los Angeles. Police said a fifth victim and the gunman were critically wounded. Orange Police Lieutenant Jennifer Amat said when police arrived at the two-story structure around 5.30 yesterday afternoon, shots were being fired. Over the next hours, days, and weeks, we will be attempting to determine and uh, get as much information on the victims, our suspect, and the relationship between those, as well as the type of business which this occurred at. The violence in the city of Orange is the nation's third mass shooting in just over two weeks. After three emotional days in the murder and manslaughter trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, the prosecution continues its case this morning. Yesterday, prosecutors for the first time played police body cam video of the arrest and death of George Floyd. 61-year-old Charles McMillan, who knew then-officer Chauvin from the neighborhood and was there that day, broke down in tears after watching video of Floyd's death. In the previously unseen police footage, McMillan can be heard speaking to Chauvin after paramedics took Floyd's lifeless body away. McMillan tells Chauvin he did not respect what Chauvin did to Floyd. In response, Chauvin justifies kneeling on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes as he lay face down in handcuffs, saying McMillan's objection is one person's opinion and that Floyd had to be restrained because he was a sizable guy and was probably on something, referring to drugs. That's, that's one person's opinion. But, but, no, 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 I control this guy because he's a sizable guy. The 19-year-old store clerk who sold Floyd tobacco and was given a counterfeit bill in return expressed guilt and remorse, saying if he hadn't taken the bill, the whole incident could have been avoided. Two U.S. Capitol Police officers have sued former President Trump for the physical injuries and emotional harm they suffered as a result of the January 6th Capitol insurrection. The lawsuit cites Trump's speech to a crowd preceding the Capitol assault, as well as his statements and conduct before that date. It says Trump failed to take timely action to stop his followers from continued violence at the Capitol. 
Capitol Officer Sidney Hemby says he was crushed against the doors on the east side of the Capitol while trying to hold back the insurrectionists. The lawsuit says things were being thrown at him and he was sprayed with chemicals that irritated his eye, skin and throat. Capitol Police Officer James Blassingame said insurrectionists who breached the Capitol slammed him against a stone column and repeatedly hurled the racial slur, the N-word, at him. The lawsuit says foremost in his mind was the certainty the insurrectionists were interested in him and the other officers not going home to their families that night. Congressional committees are laying the groundwork for President Biden's $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan. He unveiled it yesterday in Pittsburgh. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said she'd like to have the massive bill passed by July 4th. Laura Ross Broutelum reports. President Joe Biden shared the first part of his $2 trillion infrastructure proposal, the American Jobs Plan. It's a once-in-a-generation investment in America. Unlike anything we've seen or done since we built the interstate highway system and the space race decades ago. It's the largest American jobs investment since World War II. Which would fix roads and bridges, rail service, airports, and create millions of jobs. Biden said the U.S. ranks 13th in the world in infrastructure, with highways and public transit facilities in disrepair, while foreign competitors race ahead. Clean transportation technology, including charging stations for electric vehicles, is a key focus. It won't be easy to pass the huge bill, which also includes funding for home care services, manufacturing, housing, broadband, and schools, especially on the heels of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which had no GOP support. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Laura Rossbrotellum. Texas Republicans have begun passing sweeping new voting restrictions. A bill the state Senate approved early this morning included reduced options to cast ballots, limits on polling hours, and more power for partisan poll watchers. It comes after an elections overhaul was signed into law last week in Georgia, where opponents have already filed lawsuits and are calling for boycotts of corporations that are silent on restrictive voting measures. A similar measure in the Texas House chamber could advance toward a full vote later today. Seven Hong Kong pro-democracy advocates have been convicted on charges of organizing and participating in massive anti-government protests in 2019 that triggered a crackdown on dissent. They face up to five years in prison. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth on Wednesday, March 31st, marked day three of the murder trial of Derek Chavon, the white Minneapolis police officer who murdered George Floyd. He is on trial for murdering George Floyd on May 25th, 2020. Videos played in court on Wednesday included the first publicly heard defense of Chavon's actions in body cam footage. In the video, Siobhan was heard saying, we got to control this guy because he's a sizable guy and it looks like he's probably on something, end of quote. The video also showed uh, George Floyd crying and repeatedly telling the officers, please don't shoot me, as they initially approach him in a car. After being taken outside, uh, Floyd told the officer that he didn't know what was going on and that he was scared as blank. Later on in the body cam footage, a witness is heard begging police to check George Floyd's 
pulse as he was thrust face down on the concrete ground. Also on Wednesday, Charles McMillan, a witness who saw police detaining George Floyd, said he was telling Mr. Floyd to cooperate with police as they were trying to get him into the police car. He was one of the first bystanders on the scene. McMillan reportedly told Mr. Floyd, quote, you can't win. Becoming noticeably emotional, um, Mr. McMillan broke down on the stand after watching graphic footage of George Floyd's arrest and what happened after that. The video showed police trying to get George Floyd into a squad car, then struggling with police. George Floyd was clearly heard saying that he's claustrophobic and was struggling to breathe in the video. Mr. McMillan then told um, police officer uh, Siobhan, I don't respect what you did. Meanwhile, we also heard from Christopher uh, Belfry, a Minneapolis resident who was parking his car on the street corner when he saw officers approach the vehicle George Floyd was in. Belfry recorded a phone video that showed George Floyd handcuffed and sitting on the ground outside after officers pulled him from the car. He added that he started recording when he saw one of the officers draw his gun. Also, Christopher Martin, an employee at Cup Foods during the time of the murder, said he spoke to George Floyd when he was in the store. Um, he claimed that George Floyd seemed to be under the influence, and uh, Martin said he sold him cigarettes, even though he could tell the $20 bill he was using was a likely counterfeit. After Martin told his ma manager about the $20 bill, the manager ordered him to go to Floyd's car and try to get him to come back into the store. After Floyd didn't return, Martin said the manager told another employee to call the police. Minutes later, George Floyd was handcuffed on the ground under several Minneapolis police officers, and Martin could be seen on surveillance video with his hands raised over his head. During his testimony, Martin expressed guilt. He said, quote, if I would have just not taken this bill, this could have been avoided. The fourth day is resuming today, Thursday, April 1st. Let's go to a couple of clips now um, about um, witnesses and, and bystanders. Let's go to those clips now. The, the paramedics loaded Mr. Floyd into the ambulance. Were you still there at the scene? That is correct. All right. At some point, um, did you make a 911 call? That is correct. I uh, did call the police on the police. Right. And why did you do that? Because uh, I believe I witnessed a murder. Officer Tao and Chauvin, I don't, he put his hand on his mace. They put their hand on their mace. I can't remember if they actually pointed at us, but they definitely put their hand on the mace and we all backed back. Did you feel threatened by the police officers? Yes. Did you feel threatened by Mr. Shaw? Yes. Someone said he hasn't moved, and then I, and then in over a minute, was that your voice too? Yes. Why was that important for you that in, in terms of saying over a minute? Were, were you worried about the length of time that this was going on? Yes, because I knew time was running out or that it had already. What do you mean by time was running out? That he was going to die. 
One of the biggest moments of the day was the emotional testimony of Charles McMillian, who witnessed some of the earliest moments of George Floyd's arrest last Memorial Day. McMillian broke down on the witness stand sobbing after watching graphic video of Floyd's arrest. He had to huddle outside in the hallway with prosecutors who tried to calm him down, according to our pool reporter. The mood in the courtroom shifted quickly as graphic video of Floyd's arrest played on several screens. Some jurors took notes, others looked away and refused to watch the video. Floyd's youngest brother Rodney was in the courtroom and he also looked down during the video. Chauvin alternated between taking notes and looking up the video of himself on top of Floyd. Another highlight Wednesday was the testimony of 19-year-old Cub Foods cashier Christopher Martin. Martin was the one who took the counterfeit $20 bill from George Floyd the day he died. Martin said he felt disbelief and guilt after seeing Floyd taken away in an ambulance. If I would have just not taken the bill, this could have been avoided. Another powerful moment Wednesday was during the testimony of Lieutenant James Rugel. Prosecutors played several minutes of body cam footage from some of the officers who arrested Floyd. And you know why we pulled you out of the car? Because you was not listening to anything we told you. Right, I didn't know what was going on. You listen to us and we will tell you what's going on, all right? The jurors have now heard from 12 witnesses for the prosecution. Trial is expected to resume tomorrow at 9 a.m. and more witnesses are expected to take the stand. Okay, hey, so thanks the, for watching. The clips were from one Associated Press and USA Today. I'd now like to welcome our guest, uh, D.A. Bullock, award-winning filmmaker and social practice artist in the field of story-based community organizing. Based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, D.A. Bullock is also involved with Reclaim the Block, a coalition to demand that Minneapolis divest from policing and invest in long-term alternatives. D.A. Bullock, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Margaret. Okay, so you are on the ground in uh, Minneapolis, and uh, tell us a bit about what you're hearing, what seems to be the, the mood uh, on the street. Uh, we know that people have been coming out and, uh, you know, doing uh, some protests, but just give us a sense of uh, the, you know, the feeling in the community and the mood on the street right now, D.A. Bullock. Yeah, the, I think the community is, is feeling edgy and nervous, um, a lot because of the way uh, the police and the, the state and the, the city has responded. They've erected a lot of barricades and razor wire and a lot of things that they're saying are in preparation, which is put people on edge. But also, I think, you know, um, people are are expressing a lot of heartache and, and trauma, re, re, revisiting a lot of trauma because, you know, they know this. I think um, Mr. McMillan's testimony yesterday and, and how he, he broke down on the stand, I think is really, it illustrates a lot about how we are all feeling as community members, especially in the black community, because we've been through this before, we've, we've lived through this before. And, and and many times, in fact, and where you know, black folks have been killed in the city of Minneapolis by the the police department, and generally, usually, there's not even a charge uh, involved in that. So, I think yeah. that's that's the general feeling. Yeah, and I, I did see a, a photo of a mural 
that said collective PTSD. And I could believe it. I mean, I'm, you know, of African descent, not based uh, where you are, but certainly I think black people across the country are feeling uh, very vulnerable. And, and D.A. Bullock, just putting this in an historic uh, context, on this show, we have often uh, talked about uh, Joy DeGru, who's a sociologist on post-traumatic slave syndrome. And in a speech, a talk that she gave uh, in Los Angeles that our show sponsored, uh, she described um, lynchings back in the day, lynchings, and how entire families would come out dressed white people dressed in their Sunday best. They would bring their children, they would bring sandwiches, et cetera, to watch the lynching of a black man. And then afterwards, part body parts were kind of cut up. I mean, it's very gruesome and yeah. sold. There were postcards, you know, uh, made of it. Um, so that is the image of the earlier spate of lynchings um, that went on in the United States. But what yeah. happened with George Floyd, a lot of people are saying, in the United States and also across the world that people witnessed a lynching. And perhaps that is why millions of people on in every continent and in over 2000 cities came out in protest. So I hear what you're saying, because it, it seems to me as though the community uh, close, uh, the community where this happened um, are now experiencing yet again, living through and watching a lynching. Your response, yes. uh, D.A. Bullock. A absolutely. I would agree wholeheartedly with uh, Dr. DeGruy. And, and just, you know, I think people are coming to terms with how the history of policing is not decoupled from what's happening uh, currently. You know, that, that we are still a, in the, uh, an experience of a system that will lynch uh, black people and has been designed in order to control black people and, and keep them um, in an incarcerated or carceral system. So I, I think, you know, I think people are coming to terms with that, especially a lot of the, the white residents in the community who never had that experience before. We, we know that by lived experience, black folks, but a lot of white community members are just dawning upon them like that this is the lived experience the current lived experience of a lot of their black neighbors and in minneapolis in particular starting to realize the history of the minneapolis police department and also um sort of the history of, of policing in general and, and what it was designed for in, in the first place yeah and and part of that you know history also has to do with the fear of the black body. I mean, we uh, earlier in uh, our coverage on the trial, um, we had an uh, attorney uh, on, uh, and we were talking about about this. I mean, the way Chauvin talked about, well, you know, he was just this big guy, and you know, you had to suppress suppress him. But it does seem uh, to many of us that just being in our own skin. Um, 
criminalizes you or, or, or puts you at risk uh, some way, somehow. And uh, certainly for, for black men, particularly, you know, the, the kind of size that uh, George Floyd um, was, there seems to be that fear that uh, seeing someone like George Floyd immediately means, well, he's up to something or, you know, you know, officers are at risk, et cetera. I mean, that kind of uh, racist uh, stereotype and the criminalization of black bodies. Uh, your thoughts on this, D.A. Bullock? Yes, I, 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 it's, it's very, we're seeing that real time sort of in, in um, Garrett Chauvin's own testimony or, or the recorded part of that, you know, when the Minneapolis Police Department showed up, they already had in mind that George Floyd was a threat on site. And so um, that is, is sort of throughout the entire police department. You saw, like, there were four officers on the scene, and you saw them all respond the same way that George Floyd was an immediate threat. And then that precipitated all the, the activity that came afterwards and that led to his, his murder. And so knowing those, those facts, I think we know that the entire system has that as its standard, which is anytime you see a black man and, and he's sizable the way uh, Chauvin described him, then that's the standard procedures to treat them accordingly. And then, so, so we understand that that, that is, that is Minneapolis Police Department. Why? That's not limited to just Derek Chauvin. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the the history in um, Minnesota uh, about um, people dying in police custody, but particularly black people dying in police custody, but also this use of uh, neck restraints. And in fact, uh, it was described, I think, in um, in the court as it used to be called, you know, a hog tie. And Minneapolis police used neck restraints in at least 237 seven times, um, you know, during um, around 2015 or so, 16% of the incidences, the suspects and other individuals lost consciousness. Um, and this is from the department's use of force own records, right? Um, so <clears throat> uh, your thought on that, but also the work that you're involved in with Reclaim the Block and uh, this demand of Minneapolis police divest from police and invest into long-term alternatives. Just tell us how this is playing out now um, since the murder of George Floyd and with the trial uh, going on now. D.A. Bullock. Yeah, I think, you know, our response as a, as a group, as an organization, has been that, you know, because this is such a common practice, in the, the Minneapolis Police Department that they're not reformable. Like all those calls for reform that have gone on throughout the years have, have really been met with, with dead ears because that, that form of policing is not reformable. So, uh, you know, our, our thought is then we need to invest in the things that actually keep us safe. We need to invest in prevention we need to invest in intervention. We need to invest in all these things that actually keep us safe, especially in the black community. 
And so, you know, I think I think another number of things that have come out from this trial as we see it sort of broadcast is also just the fact that Derek Chauvin was, you know, he had he had performed the same restraint three weeks earlier um, on on a suspect and turned out to be the wrong person, another black man. And it was entirely unremarkable to the entire leadership of, of Minneapolis Police Department. He didn't get any kind of reprimand or demotion for it because it, it was such a common practice. And even when the 911 operator uh, tried to contact the sergeant, and, and identify this is a 911 operator calling. This is an extraordinary thing calling and saying something is going wrong on, on the corner of 38th in Chicago. The sergeant was really nonchalant about it because they do that all the time. And so we're saying the only way to keep black folks safe is really to just stop that interaction between black people and the police department and then invest in, in the type of real public safety that that would really you know um result in us being safe like i would prefer to um invest in darnella frazier who took took the video the young woman who took the video was brave enough to to stand in or or mr williams who was brave enough to to challenge the police looking out for you know other safety or mr mcmillan the elder who who knew Derek Chauvin from his activity in the community and knew that he was he was there to to tell him that he was he was watching him um, and and known him from before from his activity. I would you know we would prefer to invest in in community members and and designing our own public safety. Yeah, I mean it, it was it was just so sad hearing um, Mr. Macmillan uh, say to uh, Mr. Floyd, "You can't win." And actually, yeah. what's coming out now about white supremacist groups uh, that have infiltrated U.S. law um, enforcement agencies in every region of the country? We're being told over the past uh, few decades, and you have new analysis uh, by a former. A special FBI a special agent who has written extensively the ways in which U.S. law enforcement failed to respond to far-right domestic terrorist threats. I'm making the connection between the two. I mean, we don't know about uh, Derek Chauvin's um, affiliation, uh, but when you look at the bigger picture, uh, D.A. Bullock, when you look at what um, what happened on January 6th with the takeover of the U.S. Capitol and who those people were, right, um, there, when you look at um, the spate of, of police killings that have, that have happened, I mean, one piece of good news is that Georgia is now overhauling their citizens' arrest law after the Amand Arbery killing, but, you know, Brianna Taylor, there's still no justice there. D.A. Bullock, putting all of that together alongside the vicious attack of voting rights that targets black people, I mean, undermining a major piece of the civil rights movement uh, that was won, uh, the Voting Rights Act. And now this kind of public lynchings, because, you know, that's certainly how I and a lot of other uh, people see it. 
you know, it, it really gives us the context in which we're trying to move. And a lot of us know very well that if something happens, we're very careful to find some other way not to call the police. Because if you call the police, rather than getting justice, you yourself might end up being criminalized. Uh, let's get your final thoughts uh, on, on all this, because the, this trial and the outcome of this trial, there's an interrelationship with that history with that present day attacks happening against our communities and what could potentially happen um, with the outcome of this trial. Uh, D.A. Bullock. Yeah, I think it is It is a time of reckoning for the United States to really look at in 2021 how it is, it is difficult to discern what is white, white uh, nationalist extremism from just common right-wing um, belief system and philosophy, which a lot of police officers hold, because those are the, the places they recruit from. Those are the you know the type of mentality that comes into communities and polices other people, right? So we're seeing that play out in real time, and we're seeing the connection between that ideology, how it's it's pretty much entrenched in policing. So. In order to, to release ourselves from that ideology being of authority, especially lethal authority over us, we have to, we have to disband and dismantle that entire system. And in order to build something up that's truly equitable, truly fair and equal uh, justice under the law and accountability for anyone who, who does harm in a way of, of like restoring communities and building them back up, as a result of of individual harms that are done, right? Like, you know, because we're paying the price not only from the crimes themselves, but we're paying the price for having individuals extracted from our communities and, and incarcerated and then put back in our, our communities without any kind of restoration, without any kind of building them back up. So they come back, only their only device is to, to commit more crimes. So... You know, we've been failed by this system um, from from start to finish in, in any way that we've been connected to it. So I, I feel like what we're seeing right now is, is, is like we're seeing it laid bare for the rest of the nation who probably assumed that we had advanced quite a bit since the Voting Rights Act or we advanced quite a bit since, um, you know, the Selma Bridge when police, were employed to go out and, and harm black folks for just demanding their rights. We're, but we're not very removed from that. That's, that's what we're finding out, that we're, we're really, we're still relatively in a blink of an eye in terms of time, and, and there's a lot more work to be done. And there's really, like, radical work to be done, and not radical in a scary way, but more as, like, if we really want to change something, then we have to go to the root of it. We have to uproot those weeds, and then we have to plant the seeds for something beautiful to grow. And that, that's what we're invested in and, and interested in. Yeah, and just finally, finally, I mean, getting back to this collective PTSD, I mean, I find even though, you know, I'm a journalist trying to uh, get the story out uh, to our audience across the country about what is happening, but it really is emotional. Um, you know, watching the videos and, and even doing the interviews and, and listening to people like yourself on the ground. 
And I, I, I'm just wondering to how you are doing and, 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 and people, your friends and family, people that you, um, you know, you campaign with, because a lot of people don't necessarily understand that this kind of thing and just even day to day racism, much less being forced to, you know, having to watch and this kind of public lynching happen has an emotional uh, impact. It even has a physical impact on just the mental, emotional, and physical health of, uh, of black people. Um, and I, I wonder if you, you know, have any thoughts on that and, and how the community is really trying to, um, you know, address this and somehow get through this and take care of each other. Um, your final yeah. thoughts, D.A. Bullock. Yes. Thank you for asking that. I mean, I think I really appreciate that that consideration and thoughtfulness because I think it, it often goes uh, sort of un, unsaid and unmet about, you know, how we we greet Mr. McMillan now, like after he's off of the stand and we, we wrap him in love and take care of him and make sure that he's he has to heal from that trauma and we all have to heal from that trauma as, as a community. And, and then often we're re-traumatized. So he had to be re-traumatized in order to try to seek this, this individual justice. And so I, I think we, we are reaching out to each other and making sure um, that we have a self-care plan or a plan to, to take care of, of ourselves and take the time that that needs and, and the healing that that needs and just, and just letting the general public understand that we do need time and we we're not the expectation that we should just get over this or we should hinge our healing on um, a, a guilty or innocent verdict. It, it is not that simple. And, and we have a great deal of healing to do and a great deal of being there for each other to do and i think that's part of what we want to invest in as well is is our healing and our mental health and our our wellness i think that's an important part of public safety that's often overlooked right and and including justice as a healer in and of itself and will we see any and um what what will it look like because the the it's a lot bigger picture, as you say, than just simply um, what the verdict will be. Um, but D.A. Bullock, for people who want to find out more about Reclaim the Block and the kind of um, campaigning and organizing that you are involved in, what should they do? They can go to reclaimtheblock.org and uh, they'll see some of the, the work that we're doing here locally, but also see our connections to national and international groups who are all having this same conversation. That's, that's another thing that's, that's really encouraging is that a lot of people all over the world resonated with what happened to George Floyd, the tragedy of what happened to him, and are, are dedicated to that not happening again. And I think that's true justice, is that we, not whether some individual cop goes to jail, but whether we make sure that there there is not another George Floyd. This, this should never, ever happen again. George Floyd, a father and a grandfather, leaving a lot of people grieving. D.A. Uh, Bullock, thank you for your work and for taking time to join us. And we hope to speak with you again. We're going to be continuing uh, to cover this story and this trial. Thank you.
so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All righty. We are going to take a station break. I have to say these things, you know, trust me when I say that we are traumatized and a lot of us are being re-traumatized um, by this. It's difficult to get through these kinds of things, frankly, without weeping. So we are going to take a short station break. And uh, when we return, we're going to do our weekly Earth Minute. And then thankfully, some good news coming out of the movement um, for immigrants' rights. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Where you gonna run to? All on that day, will I run to the rock? Please hide me and run to the rock. Please hide me and run to the rock. Please hide me, Lord. All on that day. And the late, great Nina Simone Sinnerman. Uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. You can look for us on Facebook. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and sound uh, and worldwide on SoundCloud. Just look f- there. It's a uh, uh, actually it is a free app, uh, SoundCloud. And we also want to say we really appreciate not only our listeners in Southern California, but in Washington D.C. and New York City and at Atlanta, in Oregon, in Southern Illinois, in Alaska, all across the nation. So today, we're going to give a shout out to all of our listeners, all the stations uh, that are carrying Sojourner Truth. Um, We are now going to go to our weekly Earth Minute. Wednesday, March 31st, was the Global Day of Action that called for actions across the world as people demand that their leaders go beyond recovery and reject false solutions to climate change. As decision makers develop recovery policies and investment plans, this day of action challenges leaders to go beyond recovery to a future where zero waste practices drive clean air and water, more and better jobs, and a healthy environment for our families and communities where nothing and no one is wasted. According to the Gaia Global Network, As the COVID-19 pandemic continues to wreak havoc upon our communities, our decision-makers are promising that a recovery is around the corner. But the COVID-19 crisis has exposed how unjust, undemocratic, and unstable our current system is. It is not enough to simply recover. To take action and find out more about the campaign, go to zerowasteworld.org slash beyondrecovery. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project. Yes, and uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Now, for several years, grassroots human rights organizations in the state of Washington have been campaigning against private um, immigration detention centers, as well as prisons. These groups have been speaking out against the physical and verbal abuse experienced by detainees at these institutions. Oftentimes, the victims are undocumented uh, migrants, women, uh, people 
people of color and impoverished uh, people. And um, there's been a lot of activity in uh, Washington uh, state. There've been uh, hunger strikes that have been going on and I mean massive um, with a lot of support outside, really a massive, massive grassroots effort. And it's with all of the bad news, it's it's good to report on a movement victory because on Tuesday, March 30th, detainees and the grassroots movements uh, alongside them won a major victory. And here to tell us all of that, we'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Marumora Villapando, who herself is undocumented. She is a Mexican activist, organizer, immigrant, and mother in the Puget Sound region of Washington State. She is a community organizer with La Resencia, and she has lived in the United States for more than 25 years, spending most of that time as a community organizer. In 2014, Maru came out as undocumented. She's also a member of the Latino advocacy organization, as well as Mejente. Maru Mora, uh, welcome and congratulations. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're very, very excited. So, what what has happened? What is all the excitement about about this uh, Senate bill that was passed? What does it do? Well, uh, this bill uh, HB 1090 bans prohibits any for profit private prison for adults here in our uh, in our state in Washington State. It's very simple. Any for-profit private prison detention for adults are not going to be allowed uh, to operate in Washington State. That is fantastic. So if the governor uh, signs it and, and the, uh, Jay Inslee, um, this new legislation would basically force the ICE Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma to shut down. Is that right? After its contract expires, uh, you know, so just tell us broadly the implications of this. Yeah, um, the bill is about any uh, private prison, any detention. Uh, good thing we don't have any except the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. So the bill wants to make sure that we don't have any in the future, uh, and that, that the one, the only one we have, uh, somehow should be impacted. And so the way it's going to work out is that as a state, we don't have um, a say on what the feds do. Right? They can go and choose to enter into contracts with anyone they want. And that's not what we're saying. We're not saying in the contract. What we're saying is when your contract ends and you want to renew, you're not going to be allowed to because by then uh, your kind of detention is not going to be permitted to do business here. You can do it any other place you want, but not in Washington State. So this um, contract between GEO, the corporation that owns and runs this detention center, and many, uh, including a lot of them in California, for example, um, they won't be allowed to renew it in 2025. It was the last renewal that we know happened in 2015, and it was a contract for 10 years. Right. So are you saying then that this has broader um, implications and impact uh, beyond Washington State? Uh, well, it does. First of all, for us, is we don't want any private prisons here. As a matter of fact, when we introduced the bill first last year, and we didn't get it the way we wanted, we were able to remain one important piece of the bill last year, which is um, we don't want to transfer either people that are currently in prison to private prisons outside the state, uh, unless they need a really high uh, standard, which they don't. <laughs> 
So people that are in prison here in, in, in Washington are, won't be um, transferring to private prisons in, in other places. Um, we think that that's one first step that we wanted to make sure we do have some uh, repercussion in other states uh, in regards to private prisons. Um, and then by being this the 20 plus state that has said no to private prisons, I think it does create a ripple effect for the rest of the nation. As we introduced our bill, there were other three states that were introducing similar legislation, New Mexico, New Jersey, and Maryland. But there's been that 20-some states before us that some way or another, they have also said no to private prisons. Illinois, now California, with AB32 in 2019. Um, there's a lot of states around the country that, that have also uh, limited how um, these corporations are allowed to profit from, the, uh, from caging uh, human beings. Yeah, and, and Marumora, I mean, it, it seems to me to be really a case of, of a, a kind of a fusion organizing. I know the Poor People's Campaign, which I'm involved in, talks about fusion organizing, because here you are very active in an immigrants' rights organization, and uh, several of them, and movements. But th this, what you all have been able to mobilize and win with the support of others, obviously, not only impacts um, immigrants in ICE detention centers, but people of all races. Uh, who are in prison. So that is really significant. And you're absolutely right that in, in California in October 2019, similar legislation banning for-profit uh, prisons uh, was, uh, was passed, including the operation of private prisons used by ICE. So Marumora, just um, as, uh, with the little time that we have left, left, tell us a bit about that campaign. How did you pull this off? What did you all do? Well, it took years of organizing. As somebody told me yesterday, when you started uh, working with people in, pre in detain here that launched the largest ever known so far hunger strike in a detention center in March of 2014, a lot of people didn't agree with us. Um, yeah. It was really difficult. We, even the city of Tacoma did not agree with us. But we built um, a, a really strong um, narrative. We, our narrative was not apologizing for anything. We, we, we have said all the time, we want everybody free and nobody should be detained or deported. Um, and we were able to move city of Tacoma. Uh, the city council ended up being our partner in this endeavor. Uh, by the time a lot of progressive uh, legislators had already made it to the legislature here in Olympia that ran campaigns, very progressive campaigns, and got elected. We had already the people that we needed uh, to partner with us in the legislature. And the most important part is that Representative Lilian ortiz that sponsored this bill, recognized that if it wasn't because all the efforts of people detained and their families and those that have the experience of this kind of business, they spoke up and organized, they wouldn't have been able to move this bill so quickly um, without amendments. It's a clean bill, even with some Republican support in the House. Um, and, and, you know, the session hasn't even ended, and we already are waiting for the uh, governor to sign, and he should sign it as soon as possible. There's no concerns about the bill, and his entire uh, party supports the bill. So we're just waiting for him to sign it, and then it becomes the law in Washington state.
Well, Marumora, really encouraging uh, news and congratulations again. We're really happy here on Sojourner Truth. We've been following and tracking your work uh, for quite some time now, and we're glad to be able to celebrate and mark this moment with you and, and all of those that you are working with. And Marumora Viapando, for people who want to be in touch with you, any of the organizations you're in touch with, and to support your efforts, what should they do? Yeah, they should uh, reach out to us via social media. We are in Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at La Resistencia NW, that's for Northwest, and our website, La Resistencia NW, uh, org. Um, we're everywhere that social media is, so thank you so much for the opportunity. We're Again, we're really thrilled with this news. Right. Well, we appreciate you know, all of the work that you're doing, and thank you so very much for joining us, Marumora Viapando. Thank you. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to wrap our show up today now uh, with our weekly Earth Watch, where we're going to focus on the threat of uh, deforestation uh, generally, but focusing in in particular on the campaign to protect Indonesian rainforests. But let us go um, to another side of the world. They're all uh, connected here. Um, a clip from CNN on uh, deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon, because deforestation everywhere, including in Indonesia, is surging right now around the world, a 12-year high. Let's go to that clip. Awapu's tribe, the Uruawawa, first came into contact with people from outside their community in the early 1980s. Their land is a protected area of almost 7,000 square miles of rainforest in the Brazilian state of Rondonia. An increase in illegal deforestation and forest fires is threatening their indigenous way of life, destroying the forests they depend on for growing and gathering food and for clean air and water. Keeping the forests intact is crucial to protecting the rich biodiversity of this Amazon region, home to over 180 species of mammals and more than 600 species of birds. It is also vital to the state's water supply. Water from there irrigates all the fields outside it. It irrigates the soya, the pastures. If you destroy the water, you are destroying your economy. All right, and we'd like to welcome our guest, uh, Sergio Bafune, an Italian native living in Germany, coordinates the campaign to protect Indonesian rainforests run by the Environmental Paper Network, known as EPN, together with around 150 national and international organizations. He also supports uh, EPN's global efforts in monitoring and mapping of new pulp capacity development in order to identify and prevent and minimize future adverse impacts on forests by engaging financial institutions involved in the respective projects. And I'd like to say, too, that our weekly Earth Minute and Earth Watch, we partner with the Global Justice Ecology Project, so we thank them as well. Welcome, Sergio. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Now, we heard about the impact of deforestation in, in Brazil, the Amazon, considered the lungs of the planet. And you are now involved in an effort to protect um, rainforests in Indonesia. Uh, tell us what's going on. What, what are the concerns and what are you all doing about it, Sergio? Yes, yeah, so, uh, 
Indonesia uh, hosts uh, one of the last uh, stretch of uh, intact forests uh, in the in, in the world, especially uh, uh, tropical forests. Uh, it's uh, the the first global forest uh, after uh, the Amazon and the Congo Basin, and uh, we see that now that there is an increased risk of uh, uh, further deforestation, exactly in connection with the so-called uh, uh, post-COVID relief projects. This is a clear case. Uh, the government recently announced uh, a new project uh, uh, with a plan to uh, convert uh, three, around more than 3 million acres uh, of uh, forest, of, of land, uh, including big stretches of intact forest in Papua, in the New, in the new Guinea Island, Another uh, one one and a half million acres uh, in uh, uh, in Kalimantan in the Borneo Island, and uh, other a smaller project also in Sumatra, and then further uh, also announced more projects in uh, in uh, in other provinces in Sumatra and in Borneo, and they present it as a, as a, as a food estate project as as a post relief uh, a post COVID relief to prevent uh, to assure uh, food security for. Uh, communities for, for, for the people which is a kind of nonsense because actually local people there live from the forest from intact and standing forest they the the, the, the major uh, source of carbohydrate for example in uh, in the new guinea island is sago which is a small palm that grow uh, semi naturally in the in the in the, in the rainforest and what they, the government planned, on the contrary, is to, to clear those lands, uh, leaving the people without their own resources, without their own land, and giving the land to uh, agribusiness uh, uh, industry to, to, to convert it into rice fields or even in palm oil or, or uh, wood timber for, for, for pump and paper or, bio, or, or, or uh, biomass. So this is a, a quite scary uh, project, uh, also even more uh, scary because uh, part of this project has been given in, uh, in management to the, uh, to the army via the management of the, of the, um, of the defense minister, uh, uh, which is uh, now the, becoming more and more the, the strong man in Indonesia, Prabowo Subianto. So uh, if, you, if you think about this, this huge, large um, transfer of land uh, from, from local communities and intact forests into, into the hand of corporations managed uh, par or partially managed by the army, it's, uh, it's quite, uh, quite scary. Especially uh, this, those forests are based on, uh, uh, normally, uh, largely uh, based on, on uh, peatland, uh, that means uh, pizza is uh, it's a half carbonized biomass uh, that's uh, typical for uh, for uh, for a pit swamp as soon as it's drained for uh, for uh, for a pur purpose of of uh, conversion towards plantation it uh, becomes uh, um, uh, highly inflammable so it's source of huge fires we had a crisis of fires from indonesia affecting the whole area including nearby countries uh, by 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 smoke and causing a huge number of uh, of uh, of lung disease, but also it's affecting even without fire. It's it's, it's converting uh, as soon as dry, and it's it's uh, it's making Indonesia the largest uh, one of the largest uh, um, uh, CO2 emitters in the world. 
between the, the third of the, the six according uh, to different uh, calculations, but uh, it's huge. Uh, the, uh, 80, 80 tons hectares every year of CO2 go out from those converted plantations on peat into, into the atmosphere. So it's, uh, it's uh, quite scary for the climate. And it's also quite scary. This is the, the, the irony the tragedy. They are presented as post-COVID relief, but, but we know, uh, the scientists say that, that 70% of the driver of zoonosis, of, of the new emergence disease and, and, and uh, epidemics, are coming from, uh, from the uh, virus that lives uh, uncontacted in the forest. As soon as we get in contact with them, we get the, the, the pandemics, like the one we are uh, living now. And, and so uh, uh, destroying more forests will, will dr drive uh, uh, necessarily uh, that many of those uh, hundreds of thousands different viruses that live without uh, creating any damage in the forest will get in contact with, uh, with the human population and we start to, to, to drive out. So this should be, it's a nonsense to, to manage uh, COVID uh, just uh, making it worse. Right, and, and forest loss, as we said earlier, increased uh, by 12%. That's 16,000, um, you know, um, acres of, of forest uh, vanished in, in 2020. And we know the interrelationship of all of nature we are seeing with the climate crisis, melting ice sheets that has caused 18 meters of sea level rise. So all of these things are, are very much connected. So the work that you're doing so really important. Sergio, for people who want to find out more about the Environmental Paper Network, the work that you all are doing uh, to protect Indonesian rainforests, what should they do? Uh, well, we are reachable on environmentalpaper.org, but also there are groups like uh, uh, org. It's also collaborating with us in, in this project also rainforestrescue.org, uh, there is a, a number of organizations that work together um, and, and uh, definitely uh, helping in, in uh, pressuring uh, development agencies and banks and investors uh, to avoid this kind of uh, uh, tricky projects. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's important as well as, as uh, uh, support and help Indonesian organizations that are keep, keep uh, uh, helping and organizing local communities uh, to, yeah. to resist uh, and, and, to, and to protect their land and their forests. It's very important. Right. Well, Sergio, please send us those websites. We'll be sure to uh, post them on our social media for people who may not have gotten this, but we are um, short of time. We are out of time right now. So we would like to thank you, uh, Sergio uh, Buffuni, for your work and for joining us. Thank you. Thank you um, very much. We'd like to thank all of today's show. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank Kiana Williams, our audio engineer today. Romero Funes, our assistant producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. And y'all, please stay safe. <laughs>